0: People mix cheap with uh, value and uh, that, uh, that's not the right way to do it. You buy first solvent companies, then you buy contrarian, you be more contrarian. First, you be sure that the company will survive. So a few years back, people used to ask me, how can you buy power companies, power PSUs, oil PSUs, how can you buy telecom?" So when COVID hit us, you know, for uh, 18 months, we worked out of home using two things. The fact that the power connection at home, the telecom connection at home. Without the power connection at home and the telecom connection at home, I wouldn't have been able to work out of home for 18 months.
1: Hello, listeners. My name is Raj Singhal, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Investment Stereotypes. Here, we deconstruct world-class investors or wealth managers and deep dive into their investing journey, professionally, personally, or both. This episode is brought to you by Multiply.co, where we believe that investing is an ignored life skill. Our mission is to create a platform where people can find fellow investors, discover investing products, and share investing ideas. We have now gone live, and thousands of users are already part of a vibrant community. So do check out our app, which is there both on Apple Store and Play Store, or simply just sign up on web. I wanna give a little guidance on how to use the shows. None of the following should be taken as an investment advice. Please see multiply.co slash disclosures for more information. My guest for today is S. Naren. Naren is the executive director and CIO for ICSA Prudential AMC. He oversees the entire investment function across the mutual fund, And the international advisory business is instrumental in overall investment strategy development and execution he manages the icsa prudential dynamic plan icsa prudential value discovery balance fund and multi-asset fund as well narin has rich experience over 30 years in almost all spectrum of the financial services industry ranging from investment banking fund management equity research and stock broking operations his core competency lies in being involved in the entire gamut of equity market space with extensive knowledge of Indian equities and the economy. After obtaining a BTEC degree from IIT Chennai, Narain finished MBA in finance from IM Calcutta and worked with financial services organizations like RefCo, HDFC Securities uh, before joining ICSA Prudential AMC. Narain has many laurels to his credits. He's a leading voice on the Indian economy, Equity markets across investments and financial services fraternity. So, without further ado, please welcome S. Naren. Hey, Naren. Uh, welcome to the show.
0: Hi. You
1: know, you know Naren, you know, so we are, uh, you know, you're known as someone who focuses on value plus contrarian plus macro, right? Have you always been like this, or your own investing philosophy have changed over the years? And also, maybe you don't want to touch upon the whole the Chennai club you were part of.
0: Actually, uh, in 95 to 98, uh, I got hurt in equity. Uh-huh. And uh, when we got hurt in equity, you went and introspected as to why you got hurt in equity. The reason what we found was uh, lack of uh, value thinking focus on momentum thinking in 94, 95 was the reason why we got into value investing. Then uh, 2008, uh, when we, uh, at ICSA mutual fund, when we saw investors lose money in our funds, again, we went into introspective thinking as to why we lost money for our investors. We realized that macro is responsible for that. Then uh, in 2009, 10, when we started becoming big, we realized that uh, what is the learning that you have if you have to manage big money? What we realized was if you want to manage big money, you have to be contrarian. Because if you're managing big money, if you're contrarian, it's very easy to manage. So I would say these three things came out of uh, what what we needed so value based on the mistakes committed in momentum investing in ninety four ninety five personally two thousand and eight based on the losses suffered by our investors learned macro I didn't know the word macro till two thousand and eight if you had asked me what is current account deficit what is fiscal deficit what is uh, what is uh, what is all this NPL and banking problem and all that in 2008. I wouldn't have even known about it, mortgage problem, etc. So we learned it. So I would say it's the demands of the job and demands of managing other people's money which made me value, contra, and macro. And after that, uh, the last uh, 10 years, I have been a CIO of managing other people's money. I found that this combination of value, contra, and macro has helped us in managing other people's money. Uh, so I, we have stuck on to that. And that. That's why this has become attributed to I say Prudential and, uh, and I'm happy that it has stuck on to us.
1: <laughs> that, that's awesome. So, you know, I just want to pick up on macro. Uh, and I think in 2020, you said, and I'm just quoting from that, that stock markets are driven by fund managers. Global central banks, not actually driven by fund managers, global central banks control the market. The day the central banks decide to roll back the liquidity support market can come down significantly. And now we are seeing that global setup, right? About 15 inflation has, of course, rolled back, especially in U.S. and most of the developed markets. Uh, 15 to 20 central banks have high rates. I was just checking Brazil and Russia's uh, policy rates are now higher than even pre-pandemic level. Um, And of course, you know, Fed is expected to hike rates very aggressively, right? You know, market is pricing in close to what, six to seven rate hikes just in this year. Do you, in in that backdrop, uh, do you see that as, you know, something to really worry about?
0: Absolutely, a lot to worry about. (laughs) And I believe that, you know, in tune with what we told in 2020, if you see following that famous Fed statement in November 2021, It has been difficult to make money in any part of the world. China was the only market which corrected before that because Chinese central bank was was always hawkish. And uh, other than that, if you looked at it in any other part of the world, after that famous statement by Jerome Powell that uh, inflation is not transitory, it's been impossible to make money in any other part of the world. And uh, so I think uh, till the time the central banks say that Inflation is no longer a problem or I'm going to start again pumping money on quantitative easing. It's going to be very tough to make money. And uh, so the thesis that we see, you know, in June, July, August uh, 2020, we were very cautious. I was very cautious. I used to tell my colleagues in my company that we have to be cautious. And we were going wrong. So when we went wrong, we were thinking, why were we going wrong? Then we realized that actually we were looking like equity fund managers. Actually, you should have, we should think what the central banks were doing, and they were printing money as there was no tomorrow. Then we realized that uh, that's no longer that uh, we are not the people deciding anything, and it is only the central banks deciding everything. So what we decided was we will launch I C S A Prudential E S G fund. We launch I C S A Prudential Quant fund. I C S A Prudential Business Cycle fund. I C S A Prudential Cap fund, because we realized that the central banks are continuously printing money. So when we got re- approval from regulator, we immediately launched these funds. And uh, that call worked because it is the central banks who are printing money and causing everything to go up, including commodities. And uh, that call actually played out till the Fed said transitory inflation is over. Actual inflation has come back. Now we have to act against it. And after that, you notice no one has been able to make money. Impossible. If you look at it, anyone who said, okay, on the day they said, Fed uh, said, if you had moved to cash, you would have been better off, maybe.
1: Yeah. You know, so talking about inflation and, you know, we've seen uh, commodity prices going up a lot, right, including oil. Uh, but if you look at the recent RBI statement and, you know, most of us were surprised uh, that they didn't do anything. And, and probably the reason was that because they are now forecasting inflation to go down to about 4-4.5%. How do you see this whole commodity, uh, prices, inflation, especially from the equity market point of view?
0: I think the Reserve Bank of India is a very very complex and very intelligent uh, central bank. And I don't have any right to talk about the central bank. Uh, But I would say that the central bank in India has been very, very, very thoughtful. Last year, they bought so much of dollars Because they bought so much of dollars, today we have got no problems. If you look at it uh, last month, uh, they did some uh, selling of bonds. So while they were dovish, they sold a lot of bonds about a few months back. So if you look at it, they have been slowly taking out money out of the economy through VRRR, a new model that they came up with. So while they are dovish, they have done a lot of things. Uh, bought a lot of dollars and some amount of quantitative and tightening. They have uh, removed a lot of money from the economy through VRRR. So I would say that uh, the central bank in India is one of the most intelligent central banks in the world because they have not done thoughtless QE and created so much of uh, surplus uh, You know QE like what many other central banks in the world has done. So I would say that uh, we don't look at only one statement of Reserve Bank. We look at all the things that the central bank does and the government does. And we have found them that uh, they know what they are doing and we have to accept that.
1: Uh, but this whole inflation uh, uh, and the, the high commodity prices, you know, some of them actually benefit equity markets. Uh, but oil is, is a big macro issue for India but how do you see this whole uh, commodity led inflation impacting uh, india for now at the, the indian equities see one of the things that we learned
0: over a period of time at cssr prudential is that when oil goes up equity market doesn't come down mm-hmm. if you go back and study history 2004 to 08 oil went up equity market went up 2009 mm-hmm. to 14 also equity market went up along with oil so it's only when oil comes down equity market comes down in india i don't know why it's only fixed income interest rates go up when oil goes up so i would say that you know somehow indian equity market and oil is correlated in a positive way at least till one point of time maybe till 100 or something like that so i'm we are not really that worried about it i'm we are worried that valuations is too high But we are not in the equity market. Somehow what happens, I feel, is that uh, these national oil countries, they get current account surplus and they redeploy that money into countries like India as oil goes up above a certain level. And due to that, I feel that uh, equity market does not go down too much because of oil going up. That's what I feel. Having said that, I think uh, the time for easy monetary policy is over. Uh, If you look at last year, because RBI pumped a lot of rupees in the economy when they bought dollars, the economy became very surplus on liquidity. No longer is RBI going to be able to buy dollars, so if they're not going to be able to buy dollars, they're not going to be able to release rupees into the economy. They may be forced to sell dollars. If they sell dollars, they will release rupee from that, they'll remove rupee from the economy. And that is going to tighten the entire monetary conditions in the economy. So we are not where we are in 2020 and the first half of 2021. We are in a much, much tighter liquidity environment. That also will lead to volatility in equity markets over the period from now on. And we are not going to see what we saw between March 2020 and November 2021.
1: Okay. Uh, So one thing I want to talk about, you know, uh, your whole approach to asset allocation, uh, you know, and you've been running uh, one of the most successful multi-asset fund over the years. And I was actually looking at the uh, uh, results and it's very impressive results over since inception. Right. So how much of uh, your thinking around multi-asset approach uh, is driven by asset allocation strategy or or to avoid hubris? Uh, Tell us more about this whole multi-asset approach.
0: Again, this came out of 2008 global financial crisis. Investors invested aggressively in 2007, post 2008 lemon even not one rupee came into our fund house till till 2009 May. So introspection told us that we have to create products where when the money comes, we keep it aside for a rainy day and invest when markets fall. So we work very hard to create strategies where um, money is collected, but not invested immediately in equity. So we created those strategies, uh, which are asset allocation products. And through that route, what happened was uh, we started working on them. Actually, I didn't expect my sales team to be successful in collecting such products. Because in India, there's a belief equity will always outperform them. But what happened was, thanks to uh, 2011 uh, Europe problem, 2013 taper tantrum, 2015 China problem, then you had uh, DEMON, then you had GST, then you had ILFS, okay, then you have had COVID. You have had events periodically which showed that a model which involves debt also can deliver returns to the investor in a good risk-adjusted way. That today the entire mutual fund industry has followed us into asset allocation. So what we realized is uh, something which may not work, instead has become commonplace. Everyone has got into that whole framework right now. And uh, it has worked. And uh, I'm very happy that investors are focused. But what we believe is today we should have products which involve equity, debt and gold. We should have products which involve equity, debt, gold, global investing. And uh, we have to broaden that product and uh, actually have uh, more, more interesting products also. And uh, that is the framework that we've been working on because end of the day, what has happened when we started a product in 2010, debt used to give us very, very good at returns. Today, if you invest in debt, even in India, the returns are very, very low. So net of expenses, the returns that you get on the debt component is pretty low. So that is why the challenge is that we have to mix more products and hope that by mixing more products, we can get a better return hopefully to the investor because otherwise, you know, in 2014-15, if you invested in a government bond, you could get 8-9%. Today that is ruled out and that is the interesting aspect.
1: So you mentioned a couple of the asset classes, equities, debt, gold, uh, uh, probably, I mean, you know, you didn't mention real estate, but you can throw in real estate as well into that and and global investing. Do you want to share your thoughts, views on each one of them right now? I mean, you know, where do you stand in terms of your thought process?
0: See, uh, real estate, uh, physical real estate is outside the domain expertise of ICSA Prudential Mutual Fund, although as an asset management company, company we are involved in it. I think, you know, for a long period, you know, I used to tell people that real estate was an overvalued asset class. But after 2020, when mortgage loan interest rates fell in India, I changed my mind. I think today it's uh, because interest rates on home loans are so low, it seems to be at least for self-use are much more interesting asset class than it was in the 2013 to 19 cycle. Clearly for self-use, it does make sense uh, because interest rates are so low compared to what we've seen. So there, you know, I, we've used a metric which is uh, home loan interest rate minus uh, rental yield. So people always worry about valuation. So I tell them, look at this metric. This metric is an indicator of valuation. So if home loan interest rate minus uh, rental yield is uh, very high, it means that the valuation is high. On the other hand, if home loan interest rate minus rental yield is low, then valuation is low. So go back to 2015, uh, home loan interest rates are much higher. Rental yield was almost the same. So actually from 2015 to 2021, 22, actually valuations have fallen in uh, real estate. So that's how we look at it. And uh, even in 2003, if you look at it, home loan interest rate minus rental yield was very attractive at that point of time. So this is the metric I tell people to use because people keep asking me, how do I define real estate valuation in a country? And on that basis, I know that you could have always bought in uh, many of the world for self-use. I agree, but it's not a bad idea because rental yield was always uh, much higher than home loan rate in US and many other parts of the world. So for use it was always worthwhile to buy in many parts of the world. But as far as uh, gold is concerned, it has become very complex because most of my classmates in US, they all have gone into this crypto. Now, crypto, competitor of gold in other parts of the world, I have no idea there. But uh, my reading is that uh, whenever all other asset classes in the world are costly, there is no harm in putting some money in gold. Whenever all other asset classes are cheap, don't invest in gold. This was one framework which I used to convey to people sometime back that gold is a residual asset class. So if you if you find other asset classes cheap, don't invest in gold. But if you find all other asset classes costly, invest in gold. So on that basis, in recent times, it's not a bad idea to put some money in gold because neither was uh, debt cheap, neither was equity cheap, neither. So no asset class in the world looked cheap. So you can put some money in gold. Uh, that is how we have. Uh, 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 that is how we look at gold. At uh, as a at the way I look at gold is based on other asset classes. Because gold, as Warren Buffett says, doesn't give either interest or dividend. How do you look at gold? So look at it from the prism of other asset classes. If you can find any other cheap asset class, don't invest in gold. That is how I tell people these days. So now it's okay because other asset classes are not that cheap. So put some money in gold.
1: Do you want to uh, specifically touch upon Indian equities and global equities as well in terms of, you know, overall framework and view? All our models which
0: we use in our asset allocation funds say that equities in India are not cheap. And uh, that is what all the models that we are using say that. So uh, global equities clearly, the uh, if you look at Japan, if you look at Europe, And if you look at value equities or cyclical equities in uh, U.S., they all look uh, reasonably valued. And uh, these are the areas clearly which look reasonably valued at this point of time. So in my value fund, for example, I picked some telecom stocks in the world. And, you know, people told me, how will you make money in telecom stocks? I was very surprised that one of the telecom stocks I picked up in Europe uh, it was the only stock which went up 15% in this last three months. And uh, it was such a pleasant surprise to me because for five years, it had delivered huge negative return to investors. So I believe that you know there are uh, cheaper stocks in the world because somewhere in this last five years, people have bet on only extreme growth companies in US. So if you exclude the extreme growth companies in US, many of the cyclical value stocks in US and uh, Japanese and European stocks certainly look uh, okay. And you know, if you want to read an extreme write-up, you can always read the GMO write-up. I think that he has written it in a much more extreme way that I cannot, uh, I don't have the knowledge base to write it. But I would say that's how I look at it at this point of time.
1: Okay. Uh, I want to touch upon, uh, you know, this whole value investing, right? I mean, you know, the, the thing about value investing is also, uh, one thing which is associated with value investing is value trap as well. And if you look at globally, one of the markets uh, which has been viewed as a value trap is European equity markets, you know, for the last 10 years, it's been viewed as a value trap. Uh, and even Japan, I mean, you know, as, as uh, the equities have not really done very well over the years, if you see. How, do you, how does one, while looking at this whole value investing, uh, avoid the value trap?
0: See, you know, in India, which is my base country, uh, I've come to a conclusion that you have to do contrarian investing more than value investing. Okay. And uh, if you're not going to get good dividend yield on your investment, or uh, you're not going to have very good free cash flow yield on your investment, don't look at it you can't do value investing in leveraged companies. This was something, you know, one of the reasons I would say I survived as a fund manager is uh, I didn't buy uh, infrastructure construction companies in 2007-8 saying it's cheap in 2008 when they fell, because they all went bankrupt. I didn't buy private sector power companies saying they are very cheap. So I would say, you know, people mix cheap with the value. And that, that that's not the right way to do it. You buy first solvent companies, then you buy contrarian. You be more contrarian. First, you be sure that the company will survive. So a few years back, people used to ask me, how can you buy power companies, power PSUs, oil PSUs? How can you buy telecom? So when COVID hit us, you know, for uh, eighteen months, we worked out of home using two things: the fact that the power connection at home the telecom connection at home. Without the power connection at home and the telecom connection at home, I wouldn't have been able to work out of home for 18 months. So I said, these are not value traps. If I'm able to do my entire job out of power and telecom, how can telecom and power be value traps even if for 10 years they haven't delivered? So I was very confident it's not a value trap. So I bet even more strongly on them saying that my entire work is happening due to these these two sectors. And suddenly, they are, both have worked very, very well for me. So I think you have to ask yourself, are you using that product? Peter in style. Are you convinced that you will continue to use that product? So that was very clear in telecom. It was very clear in power with electric vehicles becoming the order of the day. So then uh, the moment COVID ended, I realized that we have to make use of our cars also. And you, you, you don't have a substitute to oil in the next three years. So we said oil is also not a value trap in the near term. Maybe it's a value trap with a teddy of view. So, so I believe that one of the ways in which we look at value traps is, are you convinced with the product? So if you're going to bet on a, let's say a landline phone, then it's a value trap because none of us are going to go back to a landline phone. So I believe that you have to ask yourself a question are you going to open an account in certain banks in this country? uh, If you're not going to use uh, open bank accounts, so when people ask me, is this stock a value trap? I ask them, are you going to open a bank account in that bank? If they tell me they're going to open a bank account in that bank, I tell them, no, it's not a value trap. If they say, no, 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 I want you to open a bank account in that bank, then I tell them it's a value trap. So, I believe Peter Lynch style thinking sometimes works very, very well in identifying value traps. Because the moment you're using a telecom and you're using power and you're using oil, it can't be a value trap. Particularly if it is very, very cheap. That's how, that's the, Peter Lin's test is much better than any other test in our opinion.
1: So I want to pick one sector, uh, you know, talking about his whole value investing and which is metals, right? Initially did very well, uh, but then off late last three, four, five months, uh, it's kind of stagnated. And I was looking at the pad for the quarter, right? So metal has done double the profits of the consumer sector. But of course, trades at much lower multiple uh, based on the market cap. And of course, there has to be a, a cyclicality discount on that. But how do you, how will you look at this whole metal industry uh, from this whole value point of view? A very
0: complex sector. You know, it's a sector which I've tracked for 15 years. And I later realized that China controls everything. So when China sneezes, the sector uh, goes down like one rocket. On the other hand, one day China will come and give one statement. Uh, Everyone will feel so happy. The sector will just go up like a rocket. What I realize is that uh, you cannot uh, do very, you can buy a stock based on price to book. And then uh, you have to take a call, what will China do next? And you cannot act based on what China says. You have to take a call that this is what will happen next in China. And it involves very good guesswork. And I believe Chinese policymakers are the smartest people in the world. They know how to moderate iron ore prices. They know how to moderate steel prices. They know how to moderate every commodity in the world. So in our framework, if steel prices go down very low, we buy steel stocks. If steel prices go up very high, we say, let's sell steel stocks. So that model I've seen, if iron ore goes down too low, buy iron ore stocks. If iron ore goes up too high, sell iron ore stocks. And uh, this framework we have seen has worked very much better for us than saying was today China has said this, so let's buy. That model doesn't work. So, you know, over a period of time, we believe that behavioral finance and temperament works much better in metal investing than doing deep analysis of what China is doing today. And in that framework, I would say that at ICSA Prudential Mutual Fund, we made very good uh, alpha over a period of time.
1: Okay. Uh, the other, other sector I want to pick up and where uh, uh, probably China will not have a much of an influence is banks, right? I mean, you know, so I guess you guys have a very large allocation to tier one banks and, and some, some PS, within that PSU banks as well. Uh, now there is a school of thought with this whole FinTech coming in, I think you touched upon uh, previously as well and shift in technology, what will happen to banks, people are, you know, saying many things, right? Uh, what is, uh, and, 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 and on the other side, that of course, right now, the credit growth is still very muted, but expected to go up, I personally think it will go up, because, you know, I think the Capex cycle has started, and probably, you know, people will borrow money from banks. Uh, what What is your thesis right now on this whole, you, you guys being positive on bank, what is driving that?
0: See, cyclically, credit growth picking up Lack of a NPL cycle and uh, so many years of underperformance are a positive. Structurally, what to do? We are not clear. But cyclically, things certainly look better. The problem in the sector comes differently. The problem is if there's, let's say, ten thousand crore of redemption, people will have to sell three thousand crores of bank stocks. That uh, that is a bigger problem for me than the cyclical uh, positive. So my big worry is if you take the October September to November period, FI has had so much of banking holdings that when they had to do redemption, they had to sell banking stocks. So my worry comes out of not the over ownership, the ownership itself. That every fund in India has 30% in banking. So, if you're going to have redemptions, people are going to sell banking. If people are going to have uh, inflows, people will buy banking. But uh, periodically, there are so many fundraisers which keep happening in the sector that whenever whenever inflows come, many of these brilliant investment bankers find some fundraising to do in some bank or the other. So, that's why the appetite of the investor is always taken care of. So that's why I would say that, you know, I'm more worried about redemption and inflow cycles and but cyclically, I'm positive. Okay. And at say Prudential, I think we have been cyclically most positive at this point of time because we see the combination of credit growth and uh, the lack, no problems of NPL outside, you know, at the, this MFI and those kind of areas. For the first time, the combination of the two at the worst time. And last two years, you know, credit growth has been so low. Then from your credit growth has to go up. It is like, you know, oil last year, oil had to go up. Like that credit growth has to go up from here.
1: And and within that, are you a more positive PSU versus private? Or are you just generally positive on the sector?
0: We are positive on the banks with the best TASA and the banks with the best
1: technology. Okay. Okay. I, I got it. Uh, let's talk about uh, the whole retail participation in the stock market, right? I mean, you know, we are seeing a lot of SIP flows coming to the mutual fund. And uh, I mean, you know, it's very uh, heartening to see uh, numbers have grown up to about 11, 12,000 crores uh, a month. You know, it's a large sum of money. Uh, so, um, so much so that now, you, you know, market doesn't need to worry about FI's outflow. What do you think about this whole SIP flow? There is a more structural thing to that that will stay on? So that is one question regarding retail. The other thing I want to ask is that, you know, retail is, of course, coming directly as well into the market and, you know, making large allocation to small and mid-cap. What do you think of that behavior, especially for the small and mid-cap? So both SIP and the small and mid-cap, I want to ask you.
0: I think the SIP flows are a very big positive. And uh, I think uh, the fact that investors have been steadily investing over the many years is a big positive. And uh, the problem is that uh, the problem is, do the investors know the risks of equity market? Uh, I was a stockbroker between 94 and 2004 in my career. And I noticed at that point of time that investors, many investors didn't understand the risks. Do the current investors also understand the risks? Do they understand the downsides? Do they know what they are buying? These all are my concerns and uh, in my reading uh, now, those are all problems we'll come to know if there is a meaningful correction. And uh, having seen 95 to 98 and 2001 too, I'm deeply worried about that issue. Uh, Although things like SIPs are very positive. I think that part of it is very positive. There again, people can't withdraw from SIPs when the markets fall. If you don't do SIPs when the markets fall, then there's no point in doing SIPs. SIPs have to be done when the markets fall. They can't be done when markets are high, then otherwise you're averaging markets upward. So that is the challenge at this point of time. Overall, it's a positive. But I would say that uh, we have not yet been tested to see whether that in a big market correction, And if the correction stays, because after 2012, the central banks across the world haven't allowed any market corrections. They ensure that markets go up immediately. So we'll have to see whether this time the global central banks will again allow a market correction to sustain or again they'll manage to push it up again. So is there something called a Fed put or not? That's something we have to see.
1: Yeah, And and more importantly, at what level the Fed put is there. So that is also equally important. Yeah. yeah. Oh, talking about the, uh, you know, uh, insurance companies, right? I mean, uh, and we have seen that you know, they used to trade very expensive, but off late have fallen or continue to fall, I would say. And I think I, I, I saw that you guys have been increasing allocations, especially the life insurance, uh, you know, uh, the companies in the fund. What's your overall thesis, especially in the view of the you know, uh, upcoming uh, LIC IPO, company, you know, which is going to happen in the market soon? I can't talk on the IPO, but overall,
0: we believe that you know it's another sector where gradually investors have been investing. And uh, I believe that insurance is, again, a long-term trend. India is a country where protection has not seen much of inflows. We believe that over the next 10-20 years, protection is going to see a fair amount of uh, action and lot of uh, lot of scope exists particularly in protection and we think all the life insurance companies will focus on protection and actually uh, raise lot of policies in that area so that's how we look at it
1: okay Uh you touched upon real estate, but I want to talk a little bit deeper into that, right? So you, you you made actually a couple of contrarian calls on real estate. One was in I think 2012 when you said that real estate companies are or real estate itself is very expensive. And again in 2019-20 when you know uh, you you said the real estate is coming cheaper enough. Uh, what's what's the overall thesis right now on the real estate as as a sector or real estate the companies from the stock market point of view?
0: From a stock market point of view, the addressable market cap in India is not that big because still we don't have many companies that we can bet on to the same level because still a lot of it is difficult to bet on companies which are still operating, uh, which are not listed also. So I believe that you know the listed companies are few And some of them did raise money in 2007-8 and did not conduct themselves properly on the corporate governance side. So they just without a way. So it is not as big a sector as uh, what it would be. But I think so far all the REITs which have been listed, they have conducted themselves much better. So I think what can happen over the next five years is more number of REITs get listed. And because the REITs which have been launched have all delivered a reasonable experience in the past three years. And I believe that it's possible that many more reads may come and that may be a model which can actually uh, become bigger than real estate companies per se. That's what it looks at this point. Okay. Uh,
1: so I want to mention three people who, uh, you know, I was uh, listening to one of your, uh, another talk and you mentioned about uh, Howard Marks, uh, Michael Moboshin and Monty got a reasonable influence in terms of you know or shaping the way you use you, you see the world of investing uh you know talk more deeper about them i mean you know what part of their philosophy thinking has more influenced you even montier's 10
0: tenets of investing i read i realized that uh, just reading that again and again and again and ensuring that i follow it would itself ensure that i'll manage other people's money well So once in six months, I read it and say, am I following it? Am I not following it? See, one of the biggest aspects what I learned in investing and I keep telling my colleagues at ICSA Potential, you don't need newfangled theories. You need need to follow the theories faithfully and not break the theories at the wrong points in the cycle. And uh, in my reading, Frankly, that is very important. Uh, Howard Marks taught me cycles. And uh, without knowledge of cycles, I would not have been able to understand what to do in this entire period. From what happened in 2007 8, 9, became clearer after reading uh, Howard Marks. And uh, Michael Mubison helped in taking a lot of decisions. Because you have to do pre mortems See, as a country or as individuals, we always do post mortems, and post mortems are always blame games. Yeah. You know, the moment you do pre mortems, they are not blame games. You ask yourself, what can I, what can go wrong? Instead of what has gone wrong, the moment it is what has gone wrong, we are only blaming each other. (laughs) If you ask yourself, what can go wrong? then what happens in this whole process is the discussion is much more constructive. The moment is what has gone wrong. We are trying to identify who's the person responsible for going wrong. And that too, when you're managing say Prudential AMC's investment process, it is wise to have a situation where you're trying to find out what, what can go wrong. Otherwise, all the time you'll be trying to find out who's responsible for what mistake in, our, in my. Uh, department so, and you're managing other people's money. So continuously we are trying to do pre-mortem of what can go wrong.
1: Okay. You know, I I, I, I like this uh, statement you made, right? Investing is about buying, sizing and selling, right? So, you know, I, irony that 98% of investment literature in India is basically about what to buy, right? But only very small part of people talk about sizing and selling, so uh, maybe you want to talk deeper about uh, you know, these, the aspect of sizing and, of course, the aspect of selling as well.
0: So, yeah, actually, you know, in the first, uh, when we went back and looked in 96, 97, what we realized is many of us had created what I call a zoo. Okay. Okay. And I said zoo, which means that we, you all create zoos, which means we buy so many things that we don't know what we have bought. And we buy so many things that finally at the end of the day, if you look at it, we have lost control of what we have bought. Yeah. So this whole concept of sizing comes from the fact that you know you have to buy some things in a particular scale for you to make a meaningful impact on portfolio. Mm. If you look at most of the investors in the country, you will find so many things that you know you don't know what has what you have bought. But the moment you're sized, what happens is you have done much better work. Outcome is much better. Because you have done much better work and then you have bought much more of something. It's much easier for me. But if we have bought that, I say, say potential 9% of a company, we better not go wrong. So, so I believe that the sizing aspect is absolutely very, very important. And very, very, very few people are focused on it particularly in the initial parts of their investing career. It is only later they realize that if they don't size, they create a zoo.
1: Yeah, true. You know, we always get fascinated by talking that next decade belong to India, right? So we always uh, been generally bullish that, you know, time and all, all of those things, right? But what do you think from the coming decade, right? We bullish about PLI and CAPEX and a lot of things being talked about. What do you think?
0: No, I'm trained to look at cycles, much less trained to look at such very big structural trends. So, what uh, what is the learning I have is, uh, you know, if there is a period of time when I see excessive pessimism, I look for that, that point of time at, at a very optimistic story. And uh, at a time of excessive optimism, I talk pessimistic. Okay. So, this is how I'm trained to think. So, when people say next 10 years, next 15 years, next 20 years, people tell me, I tell them, you do asset allocation, you will make money. In March 2020, we we tell people this is a time to invest very aggressively. And uh, that is there in media if you check.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: what happens is, you know, what happens is people, uh, what Marx has said that there are cycles. So in those cycle periods, no, there is a time to give an exceedingly optimistic view. And uh, right now, the tone that we give in uh, February 2022 is to give a view that you focus on asset allocation. And yes, over a 10-year period, always things will be good due to various structural trends in India and uh, very positive demographics. Structural growth story, good business cycle, etc. But uh, valuations are not as cheap that one should uh, put everything in one asset class. This is how we tell people and people don't like to hear that. But uh, then we find it easier to convey that because then it protects us that at a later point of time we can actually genuinely give a big buy call in, uh, referring to what we have said in February 2022.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's true uh let's talk about personal investing right uh, uh, you know so you know you've been in the market for longer and you've uh, I've, I've also read that you've the whole investing cycle the uh, whole investing uh, your journey started in your home when you used to talk to your dad about and, you know about this whole investing thing how's your own personal investing side uh, has evolved uh and you know uh, have you ever also personally looked at investing in any of those high growth tech names globally or, or even, even now in India, some of them are getting listed, which is very off late now. How do you look at the whole thing? And especially, you know, how, how have your behavior changed, your personal investing behavior changed in the volatile times?
0: It's become more conservative, maybe due to age, due to the fact that uh, I have a special child. And uh, it's become reasonably conservative, so I stick to mutual funds. Uh, particularly, I say, say I, and then uh, and then uh, happily, I don't do all these uh, complex uh, anything complex. I'm happy investing in mutual funds. And uh, I found that, uh, you know, you will be surprised that uh, these kind of things itself give you very decent returns given that uh, mutual funds are a good vehicle to invest in. And uh, so I have, uh, but uh, in uh, in 2012-13, you know, that fund was available in India. And at that point of time, when I invested and uh, that I did Peter Lin style after being falling in love with my iPad, and at that point of time, uh, no one wanted to invest in NASDAQ, yeah. the NASDAQ fund which was, lot, which was available in India. But, you know, today everyone has fallen hell over heels. <laughs> investing in global uh, funds, but now I'm much more measured and I'm very happy with an asset allocation approach to global investing also through a product that our company created called multi-asset, passive multi-asset fund of fund. But uh, I believe that you know these kind of asset allocation models are uh, good enough when market valuations are high. If there is a dislocation in the market and I feel the market is dislocated, maybe at that point of time, I will go and uh, possibly take a much more aggressive approach to investing. But right now at this level of the market, with uh, global central banks having pumped uh, $25,000 billion of money in QE, I'm happy being doing asset allocation and re- being relaxed about it in the mutual fund format.
1: So uh, talking about some of the growth names, uh, which are getting listed in India, and we have seen those also getting impacted in this whole, uh, you know, global tech meltdown, uh, especially in the high growth and, and uh, loss making, especially loss making names. How do you see this whole uh, sector, you know, evolving in India? And, you know, you have any uh, suggestions for the investors who are looking at this uh, sector itself? I
0: think we were lucky. First, was that the first
1: few companies
0: itself, there was one which has fallen 50%. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have had 20 companies coming like that, and as mutual funds, and that too, as one of the largest mutual funds, I say, say, Prudential would have had a tough time saying not investing in many of them. So, and if they had all become successful. So, I would say right now, after a few of them have uh, come down substantially. We are in a better position to look at them more rationally, and uh, investment bankers also have to come to us more rationally. But it's a challenge, I must tell you, because see, we are all looking. We are all used to looking at uh, cash flows. We are all used to looking at profits, and everyone thinks every company in India will become a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon, and uh, I. And, you know, some of us, uh, maybe with gray, hair, believe that everything is not going to become a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon. Yeah. And uh, that becomes a big challenge. So I do rely on my younger colleagues to give me a more positive view on many of these companies. And then we debate it out and uh, try. we try to moderate their view. They try to moderate our negative view. So it becomes very interesting. But so far, we have come out winner. But uh, luckily, this derating which has happened in the last two months is a big support for us. Otherwise, I was very, very worried. Three, four months back, I was very worried how this will shape up. Because if all loss-making companies have 1 lakh crore market caps, how do I run my funds with my kind of thought process? And I'm managing other people's money. So I was really worried. Luckily, things are improved
1: uh, you, you spoke about your, your younger uh, fund managers and I was listening to one of, the, you know, various, you spoke about having a co-fund manager uh, actually helps, uh, especially, you know, you talked about yourself, avoiding some of the biases, uh, you know, every, all of us have. So how has this strategy played out uh, for, for you guys in terms of having co-fund managers? It's been brilliant
0: for me because at the end of the day, you know, you have to accept the other person's view and not say you you are less experienced, you know nothing, then it will not work. So you hear the other person's view, it gives you a lot of scope to think whether the other person is right or you're right. You have a little less time to look at uh, things bottom up. You have much more gray hair and therefore more experience in terms of having cycles. So you mix your ability to look at cycles and uh, having the experience of seeing longer periods of time of seeing managements with that person's knowledge of bottom-up. The combination of the two has been of great help over a period of time than, uh, an ex- than, uh, and has helped in preventing mistakes. Particularly the selling decision has been helped. Uh, there was a time when I was I used to sell too early and uh, make a lot of mistakes due to selling too early. My co-fund managers helped me to slow down my selling decision and uh, helped me create huge alpha in some of my ER because I had a capability to buy falling knives. But I had a capability to also sell early. So my co-fund managers prevented me from selling early some of the winning stocks that I had bought correctly at the right time. So I would say that decision was completely due to whatever learnings I had from my co-fund managers. Having said that, I keep saying that fund management is part art, part luck, part science, and temperament is very important. It is the combination of all these things which lead you to winning, both as a fund manager and as an investor. People think it is only uh, knowledge. It is not. It is this combination which is important. And if you get this winning combination right, you don't need to work in a mutual fund to make money. You can make money without working in a mutual fund. But uh, maybe working in a mutual fund like I say, say Prudential helps you to learn these skill sets. to so actually, this combination is what needs is needed for you to actually make money over the long run. And that's, that's what uh, if you look at a 95-year-old uh, Warren Buffett or even older Charlie Munger has shown us over this entire period.
1: True, true, true. Uh, let's come to some, uh, you know, your 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 personal life as well. And you've been very open about it. You just mentioned as well that you have a special child at home. Uh, tell us about, you know, what challenges that comes, or you know, and what how how that how that changes you as a person. So actually, you you
0: tend to think less about your career, and uh, when you think less about your career, you do better in your career. You tend to think less about money, so you can make more money personally.
1: <laughs>
0: so, you know, what happens is, uh, and uh, I believe that uh, you, you become little less arrogant about your uh, IQ and your capability. Uh, so, I think the combination of all these things are very, very helpful and uh, you recognize that the long run has more uncertainty just like the market has more uncertainty so maybe that helps you to take uh, better investment decision because investment decisions are all about uncertainties so maybe i would say that uh, it's very something which i found uh, very difficult to say but you know somehow it prepares you for life better because investing itself is about uncertainty I mean, as we speak in February 2022, who would have thought that Ukraine will become such a big problem if you had told me six months back that Ukraine would be one of the problems that we have to grapple with. No one would have known. But maybe because of all these things, you are more prepared for life's uncertainties and uh, you tend to think less in certainties. That is of great help. And of course, you have to recognize that in the Indian family system, the amount of work that uh, my wife has done in this whole thing is thousand to one to what I have done. And uh, that is the reason why I've been able to focus on my job, my my investors, and the thrill that I get from looking after my investors has been possible only because of my wife focusing on this. That's,
1: that's so true. That's so true. You know, our, our show is actually called uh, Breaking Investment Stereotypes and you've been actually, uh, you know, breaking a lot of stereotypes over the years, but any particular one or two you want to talk about? What
0: do you mean by that question? I couldn't get it clear.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying our show is actually called Breaking Investment Stereotypes. We all have a lot of stereotypes in our image, right? About many things and especially about investing. Uh, and I think you've been, you know, when you said contrarian, that itself is kind of, a you know, breaking a little bit of a stereotype. Uh, normally people go with momentum any particular one or two things uh, you want to talk about which, which is generally accepted norm but you you think you know people have to look at it very differently
0: see i think you no know, there is a perception that you need to know everything to make money over a long period of time in investing mm. and uh, that is not uh, true uh, what is needed is a good temperament and what is needed is uh, basic uh, common sense and maybe one or two other people to reason out that common sense and an ability to des- take uh, right decisions at the right time. So if you ask me, this is not uh, like if you read the uh, Howard Marks' memos over the last 30 years, he has not used the word price to earn in ROI, return on invested capital, any jargon in any of his memos and frankly if you ask me to make money in the markets over a 30 to 40 year period, you don't need to know everything about finance but you need to have the right temperament, you need to have the right uh, common sense and maybe you need one or two people to debate debate a decision. And then you should have the ability to take the decision. Somehow, uh, that is what is needed. So in 2012, to buy US equities, after 12 years of US market doing badly, it was very, very easy. And in fact, uh, at say Prudential, we launched the US fund. And no one was willing to invest in US at that point of time. For us, it was a very simple decision. 12 years of zero return in one of the best capitalist societies in the world. And markets were very, very cheap. And the companies in US were the best. So for us, it was such an easy decision. So so the temperament part of it, the logic part of it, the common sense part of it was very, very easy. And uh, if you looked at it in 2012, after 10 years of real estate doing well in India, And real estate in Bombay and Delhi and Gurgaon and Noida becoming so expensive. Real estate in Bombay, Delhi, Noida, Gurgaon was very, very easy to know that it was very, very costly. So somehow people ignore common sense and think that investing is very, very complicated. It is not. It is simple logic and the ability to not do what everyone else is doing at that point of time. And, and maybe you need one or two other people to be debating with you and the ability to take that decision. So in March 2020, when markets crashed, to put some money to work was too easy. I'm not saying to put all the money because you would have not known what is COVID. But to put some money to work was not difficult at all. So I believe that uh, you know to take out money after a blistering rally from March 2020 onwards, at 60,000 was not again very difficult. So I believe that, uh, I think at 60,000 to practice asset allocation, which we came on TV and said was not very difficult. Again, it was common sense. So somewhere investing is common sense, but to practice common sense is not easy. And this is our learning over a period of time. So when people do complex leveraging at wrong points of time in the cycle, they take complex shot at wrong points of time these are all things that have to be avoided and uh, so i would say investing is common sense but common sense is not easy yeah, that is yeah. what i would say is what uh, my ending comments yeah
1: just last one question this is what we ask everyone uh, you know uh, uh, what will you advise to your own 20 year old self so you know someone 20 year old comes to you for life advice what will that be
0: it would be that one, uh, keep learning. Second is don't become too arrogant and uh, have humility built into you. And, uh, and I believe that this quest for learning uh, and uh, I believe that you have to learn to be a better communicator. At the age of 20, I was a hopeless communicator. And I did not know how to deal with others. I think it's important to know how to deal with others, whether it is family, friends, bosses, subordinates, colleagues. It's very important how to know how to deal with everyone around you. And uh, I believe that if and I use and become a good investor by using common sense. It's very important to be a good investor than to worry about many other things in life. But people in India are not taught how to be a good investor. They are not taught how to be a good communicator. They are not taught how to deal with others in their life. They are taught how to do complex integration calculation, complex calculus, complex, very many more things complex. But I would say these three skill sets, Learn how to communicate, how to deal with people, and how to be a good investor of your own money, or how to plan your own finances. These are the three skill sets which help you in your life, and which people don't have. Many people don't have. my life.
1: Now, With that, we come to uh, you know conclusion of our talk, uh, Naren, Thank you so much for your valued time. You know, I really enjoyed the conversation. So, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.